All right, if you guys want to go ahead and grab a seat, <laughs> open those Bibles up to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Today's sermon is called The Golden Chain of Salvation. And uh, I mentioned uh, during prayer today that we were driving down uh, to church. I had Titus and Tatum, my two younger kids, with me, and we just prayed on the way down. And uh, and just Titus prayed. Just you know, he's nine years old, and he just was like, "Lord, I'm just so thankful that Sunday just happens again and again, and that we get to just keep gathering with your people." He said something else too that was really like profound, and I just like you know, just kind of discipling them, just kind of encouraged them like, wow, Titus, that was just awesome, an awesome thought to pray out to the Lord, you know, and Tatum had prayed right before him and uh, she prayed out as we were driving down the road, uh, Lord, thank you for making us Christians. And I was just like, wow. And I was just like, Tatum, like that is a great thought that the Lord has made us Christians. He's um, it's really, I bring that up because it's in line with our teaching today. All right. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And so for, uh, you know, what's Tatum? She's, uh, seven years old now to have this thought of thank you for making us Christians, Lord. Um, I was just like, that's awesome. A little girl, you know, and just encouraging her in that. And so we are going to be looking at what's called soteriology. Right, the study of the salvific ways of God, the study of God's plan of salvation and really his overarching sovereign um, hand and role in saving us. And so really just Romans eight, twenty-nine through thirty, um, they're kinda like, you know, you you've got a cold motorcycle, you know, and you just give it that first crank start. And it's just kind of like, okay, um, that's going to kind of be this set of verses here. But by the time we get in chapter nine through 11, man, we are just, we got it wide open. All right. And it's going to be a whole lot of deep doctrine on the subject. It's going to be really good. And it's going to be uh, on the theme of Israel and their past, present and future. But that's in a few weeks to come. And so for today, what better way to start out uh, teaching on soteriology than to make a joke about Calvinists? So a Calvinist arrived at the gate of heaven. He sees that there are two lines going in. One has a sign that reads predestined and the other free will. He naturally heads to the predestined line. While waiting, an angel comes and asks him, why are you in this line? He replies, because I chose it. The angel looks surprised and says, well, if you chose it, then you should be in the other line, the one that says free will. So the uh, Calvinist now slightly miffed, obediently wanders over to the free will line. And again, after a few minutes, another angel asks him, why are you in this line? And he sullenly replies, someone made me come here. All right, so um, I think we're done for the day. It's nice to lighten the mood when talking about soteriology because it can become such a controversial issue, and I really don't think it needs to be as long as we just keep the whole of the Bible in mind as we're studying uh, the subject. But let's just look at our verses. I'm going to go back to verse 28 where we finished off last week, where it says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So we have just found so much comfort in that verse this week. I can't tell you how many times this verse I've used uh, in comforting people who just are hurting and struggling and comforting myself with this verse. But you'll notice that we have kind of two ideas that are both true. Uh, one is called man's responsibility. And what's the root word of responsibility? Ability. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Response. 
right? Uh, response. So man's responsibility, uh, which would just be a response to who the Lord is. Now, uh, here we have, uh, for those who love God, all right, I'm acting in this. I'm loving God. It's something that I'm doing, all right? Uh, I love God, and I know that God is working all things together uh, for my good as I love God. But then it also says, kind of this other main point that's also true, uh, to those who are the called, those who are the called according to his purpose. So it shows God's sovereign calling in my life, his overarching purposes and his calling, uh, but both are true. I love God and he's called me. Now, really, like we studied last week, my love for him is a reflex response to his sovereign calling in my life. And so Paul unpacks what he means about God's purpose. And in the life of the believer, there's a chain of events. And you guys, we are going to get into some things that are so complex over the next number of weeks I just hope you don't leave and, and I hope you don't get discouraged, but I hope you, you know, maybe bring your notepad or get your notes out on your phone, start taking notes, get ready to dive in. The Lord wants to take you deeper. But at the end of chapter 11, when Paul is done saying all of this, he kind of leans back and goes, whoo, and he says from Romans 11, oh, the depths and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past even finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor, right? Or to whom has he ever lent that, uh, or borrowed that they owe, he owes them anything? And then it says, oh, and of him and to him and through him are all things. To him belongs the glory forever and ever. Amen. And essentially what Paul is doing at the end of these soteriology chapters that are so deep, and we're going to go through them together. We're in this together, okay, guys? Paul just says, I don't really know how it all works, (laughs) but the Lord is so great and has done such great things, I'm just going to worship him. And really that's where we ought to be at the end of each one of these teachings. It's been said that theology promotes doxology. Our study of God makes us praise God. And I hope that's what we do at the end of today is that we just praise the Lord for his goodness. Now, C.S. Lewis said, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both two pillars of the faith that rise up into the heaven and meet somewhere before the throne of God. All right, so maybe one of the pillars here is we have God's sovereignty. I believe in God's sovereignty. I rejoice in God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is biblical. It's it's really the umbrella that everything else comes underneath. God is the initiator of salvation. And oftentimes, kind of like if the pendulum were swinging, over on this side where there's more of a value and a and an appreciation for God's sovereignty. Um, a lot of times they, people would say they fall under the camp of what are called Calvinists, okay, and kind of follow the teachings of John Calvinist, or maybe what would be called the Reformed movement, all right? And I love the Reformers, and I love Reformed pastors and preachers. I've got so many books that I love. Some of my favorite pastors that I listen to are reformed or would be called Calvinists. And I just value and appreciate that. And, uh, and then probably just on the other end of the spectrum would be called Arminius. And they really more just appreciate man's action in the thing. And a lot of times detrimental to uh, a glorying in God for his role in their Christianity. And there, there may be a neglect in that. And so, um, kind of Rory, where do you fall in the mix? And are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminius? And I've always joked along with my pastor, Rob, uh, no, I'm a Calvarist. All right. I just know that I am saved by the blood of Jesus spilled at Calvary. 
and I embrace the mystery between these two pillars and I say yes and amen. And there's going to be times, you guys, I'm going to be preaching through the next number of weeks and you're going to be like, this dude is a Calvinist, (laughs) you know? And then there's going to be times where you go through other passages of the Bible and you're going to be like, is this guy an Arminianist? And I think Calvary Chapel a lot of times kind of takes some punches to the cheek and or the jaw, you know, and we're, we're called Arminianists, but I don't think that's true at all. I think we have just an understanding that we embrace the mystery that the pillars of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, some, they're both true and somewhere they meet before the throne of God. And I don't really know how it works. There's a mystery to it. And I hope that you just see in me over the next number of weeks and then uh, that there's just necessary humility when you come to this subject and, uh, and we'll get into it all so much more, so much more. You guys, it's going to be a lot. And I wish I could tell you that today's not going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot. Okay. So anyways, so we come to this word, uh, for new, for new, for those that he foreknew. It means to know beforehand. Now, one of the attributes of God is his omniscience. You kind of heard some of these big words before. Omnipotency means all powerful. Omnipresent means always present. Omniscience means always about science. No, I'm just kidding. That's not it. Um, it means all knowing, all knowing. These are just, it's a character of God. It's, it's a quality of God. It's an attribute of God and God is omniscient and has foreknowledge. Now listen to this. God knows all things, both actual and possible past, present, and future completely, perfectly, simultaneously, and eternally. All right. That is so important to understand when you're looking at soteriology Because even the reformers can simplify it too much where they land in the camp that they're in and they forget that in God's omniscience, not only does he know everything, but he knows everything that could possibly be if any given circumstance coulda, shoulda, woulda, or mighta happened. And that all falls into salvation and those purposes. He foreknew us, not just in a knowledge sense, but in a relational sense as well. John Murray said, the word know is used in a sense particularly synonymous with love. Whom he foreknew is therefore virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. So in his foreknowledge, Jeremiah 1, 5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I mean, can you believe that? Before we were even in the womb, God knew us. Before you were born, I sanctified you and set you apart for me. And then I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. You know, my I don't know if this is a common phrase used out there in the world, but my mom and dad always would tell me, you know, when you were just a twinkle in your daddy's eye, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what does that mean? And then I got it. Saying, you know, it's like, oh, it's essentially what the Lord is telling Jeremiah. When daddy Jeremiah and mommy Jeremiah had twinkles in their eyes, I knew you essentially is where it gets to. I think I simplified it, but, or First Peter one, two says that we as Christians are elect. Yes. But that it's according to the foreknowledge of God. That's an interesting thing. When you get into understanding God's sovereign calling and election and, and who he calls and who he elects. And Peter just adds that interesting phrase in it all in that. Somehow in the mystery, God's calling includes the shoulda, woulda, couldas aspect of his knowledge 
And I would say that Peter's getting at, in God's foreknowledge, he knew who would believe when they heard the gospel. And that that's all part of it. It's such a crazy big aspect of soteriology. Now, the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, which I know when you woke up this morning, you were like, I really hope he quotes a giant paragraph from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, which, side note, does not have any illustrations. Not as fun as I thought it was going to be when I got into it. But it says this, and I'm going to read it to you in my best professor from Ferris Bueller's day off voice, just for you today. Election, God's plan to bring salvation to his people and his... Okay, just kidding. I'll do my normal voice. Election, God's plan to bring salvation to his people and his world. The doctrine of election is at once one of the most central and one of the most misunderstood teachings of the Bible. At its most basic level, election refers to the purpose or plan of God, whereby he has determined to affect his will. Thus, election encompasses the entire range of divine activity from creation, God's decision to bring the world into being out of nothing, to the end time, the making anew of heaven and earth. The word election itself is derived from the Greek word eklagomai, which means literally to choose something for oneself. This in turn corresponds to the Hebrew word bakar. The objects of divine selection are the elect ones, a concept found with increasing frequency in the later writings of the Old Testament and at many places in the New Testament. And there's four for you right there. The Bible also uses other words such as choose, predestinate, foreordain, determine, and call to indicate that God has entered into a special relationship with certain individuals and groups through whom he has decided to fulfill his purpose within the history of salvation. You're welcome. Okay. So we have this predestined, or you notice in that quote, elected, choose, call. There's just a number of words that are kind of used synonymously to speak of God's sovereignty in salvation. And we see that he has predestined us, Christians. John Stott says, this is not to deny that we decided for Christ, which would be this pillar over on this side. And Stott says, and freely, it was freely that we decided for Christ, but to affirm that we did so only because he had first decided for us. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so just in that verse, we have the word chose. All right. When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world, right? What did he choose us for? To be holy and blameless before him in love. All right. Now, verse 5, we've got another word, big, deep one. I know you guys just, just bear with me today. Having predestined us, predestined us to what? To adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So something about election and choosing and um, calling and all of these things that God does for us. It's according to just the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6 is important here in Ephesians 1 that all of this is to the praise of the glory of his grace. What should we do when we hear of election and choosing that we would be adopted and blameless and pure? This should cause us to praise him for his grace. Then as you jump down to Ephesians 1.11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
So in election, predestination, calling, choosing, God's sovereignty, this pillar on this side, it's all according to his purpose, that he's working everything according to the counsel of what he wants to do. Now remember what John Murray had said in that quote about to say that he foreknew us ultimately hangs on that he foreloved us. And that's essentially part of this pillar. It's kind of the rebar in this pillar where uh, we might think of it as if your spouse had come and said to you that she loved you before she met you and had longed after you, after watching you in a variety of contexts, would you be upset in any way to hear this? Just you were at a party or something and your wife, you know, now your wife said, man, I remember that day I saw you from across the room. You didn't even know I was in the room. You didn't even know I existed. I just thought you were so handsome. You were over there with your spiky hair and your big Adam's apple and your giant horse teeth, your hunchback. And I just thought, I want that, you know, I'm going to marry that guy. And She tells you that exactly word for word. Would you be mad? No, hurt a little, but mad? I don't think so. No, you would just, to hear of that forethought before you even knew her, man, she was like coming after you. She loved you. Man, that would just make you embrace her all the more and ask her to come up on the stage so you could give her a, as Kim Walker Smith says in her song, He Loves Us, a sloppy wet kiss. Am I right? Not going to do it? Okay. Didn't think so. Always try, guys. Always try. Now, in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, we have essentially when Jesus tells Israel uh, that he... Uh, when God calls Israel, he essentially says to Israel, I loved you. Why? Why did God love Israel? And essentially in Deuteronomy, God the Father says, I loved you not because anything that you can give me or anything that you can do for me or anything that you are. I just love you because I love you. And that's essentially God's sovereignty in salvation. That's what grace is. It's unmerited, unearned favor from God that you did nothing for. He just loves you because, because he loves you. And there's such security in that because when you don't measure up time and time again, day after day after day, and you just are stumbling and bumbling along in life, you can always just rest and you know what? It didn't matter in the first place and it doesn't matter now because it's not about me and what I am and what I've done and how I look and my pedigree. It's all about Jesus and his grace. When it comes to predestination, Alistair Begg said, predestination is a difficult doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine and a profitable doctrine. Often when people hear of predestination or election, they get really just excited to just drop the bomb on people, the election bomb. But Eric Alexander said, it's not a bomb to be dropped on people or a banner to be marched under, but a bastion or a stronghold for the souls of those who are in Christ. When you're suffering when you're hurting, when you have failed and you know that you just haven't measured up and the enemy comes and begins to condemn you, you can just run into the fortress and the stronghold of God's sovereignty and said, he started it, he's going to finish it. It never had anything ultimately to do with me. And I rest in that he who began a good work in me is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Easton's Bible Dictionary. You know, I know when you woke up this morning, you were just hoping not just for one good Bible Dictionary quote. Easton doesn't even try to sugarcoat it. He's like, I don't have any pictures. The front of the book, actually, no pictures in this book is what it says. But it says, uh, the word is properly used only with reference to God's plan or purpose of salvation. 
the Greek word rendered predestinate is found only in these six passages. He gives them there. And in all of them, it has the same meaning. They teach that the eternal, sovereign, immutable, and unconditional decree or determined purpose of God governs all events. This doctrine of predestination or election is beset with many difficulties. It belongs to the secret things of God. But if we take the revealed word of God as our guide, we must accept this doctrine with all of its its mysteriousness and settle all our questionings in the humble, devout acknowledgement. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Charles Hodge, a reformer, wrote, uh, rightly understood this doctrine, number one, exalts the majesty and absolute sovereignty of God while it illustrates the riches of his free grace and his just displeasure with sin. Number two, it enforces upon us the essential truth that salvation is entirely of grace, that no one can either complain if passed over or boast himself if saved. Number three, it brings the inquirer to absolute self-despair and the cordial embrace of the free offer of Christ. And fourthly, in the case of the believer who has the witness in himself, this doctrine at once deepens his humility and elevates his confidence to the full assurance of hope. So uh, I'm sure you all got all four of those, and you could repeat them back to me if called upon at random. A good friend of mine who taught at the Cornerstone School of Ministry in Corvallis, his name's Adam Poole, he just wrote something so simply in his notes, and he said, election is a family language. This is language that we use with each other just among the church rejoicing in that God has saved us. How did he save us? Man, you can look at eternity past and see his plan to save even me. You guys ever, you know, uh, go home for a family reunion and you notice that you all talk the same, you know, all the aunts and uncles and the cousins, there's a certain twang, you know, in your accent. Um, if you know my cousin, Rhett, you know, my cousin, Justin, there's a little bit in that of all of us, right? If you see Joe and Amy and uh, their relationship, this is, no, I'm just teasing. <laughs> They're looking at each other back there. I saw, I saw it. You're like, you know, you know, I don't know, Hepner, Lexington. Mm. <laughs> <Ding>. Okay. <laughs> but as we are Christians, we come in here and we're able to, yes, use the words, God's sovereignty, rejoicing in it, helps us trust in him in the struggle. He called me, he called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I rejoice in his election. Man, I love the Lord. But why? Because he first loved me. It's family language. Ed J. Huther from the 1800s said, elect is always used of those who have already become believers. Never of those who've not yet received the call. So you don't kind of have to teach me like, if you're elect here today... You know, or as you're sharing the gospel, like maybe, you know, um, it's just, it's a family language that we use among the home. Martin Luther said, predestination is a wonderfully sweet thing for those who have the spirit. And John Stott, it's abundantly clear that the scripture's emphasis on God's sovereignty never diminishes our responsibility Instead, the two lie side by side in an antinomy. I butcher this word every time I try to say it. Antinomy or antinomy? Let's vote. Do you like antinomy or do you like antinomy? Okay, I think so. All right. Which is an apparent contradiction between two truths. Unlike a paradox, an antinomy is not deliberately manufactured. It is forced upon us by the facts themselves. We do not invent it and we cannot explain it, nor is there any way to get rid of it, save by falsifying the very facts that led us to it. 
In fact, I'll just mention that in my great conversations with hyper-Calvinists, uh, where you try to bring in scriptures that support the mystery of it all, they literally will say, I hate those verses and try to ignore them. So do you see how it's like, man, it's real easy to just tight grip something and not understand that there's a mystery to it all. A good example, Stott says, is found in the teaching of Jesus, who declared both that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And that you refuse to come to me or to have life. Why do people not come to Jesus? Is it that they cannot? Or is it that they will not? The only answer which is compatible with his own teachings is both, even though we cannot reconcile them. And so when our hearts condemn us and we've messed up royally and everything seems to be against us, not working for our good, where do we retreat? We go back to the Lord Jesus and say, the love of my Redeemer who loved me before I ever knew Him, who took the punishment I deserved before I was even born. And I have a guarantee in God's sovereignty that He never quits on a project. Now there's three caricatures that we kind of create and are trying to understand all of this. These caricatures cause us to sidestep the instruction. The first caricature is the notion that there is a person who wants to believe, but is turned away by God because mm, you're just not elect. But I really, shush, 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 shush. <laughs> not elect. Okay. You don't see that in the scripture. Secondly, that there's such a person who doesn't want to believe, but is compelled to. Now you do have these things that we see like Saul of Tarsus, who, you know, was persecuting Christians, but there seemed to be something going on before the road to Damascus where there was major conviction going on in his heart and he was kicking against the goads and it was something that was hard to, for him. Didn't take much for the Lord to break him on the road, but just the revealing of himself. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen says, Seek me and you'll find me with all your heart. Now, seek me and find me if you seek me with all your heart. So with the... Antin, uh, antinomy, I'm going to start using that more regularly. Once a day, I got to use that word. Truths that are contradictory to us are not contradictory in heaven. Now, to those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined, our verse says. Predestined for what, Romans 8, 29? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's something that God had planned before the foundation of the world that he would conform us and, and press us into the likeness of Jesus. Image in the Greek is the word icon. And we're just kind of pressed into the mold of the Lord, conformed to his image. First Corinthians 15, 49 says, as we've borne the image of the man of dust, that's great, great grandpa Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That's Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's always been God's sovereign will to conform us, to transform us, to be like Jesus. To be like the image of the Son now, Christian joy is found in the essence of these promises. As we get into um, this text, there's so much joy to know that he's also uh, making us like the firstborn among many brethren. To be like Jesus, who is our forerunner. He's our model. He's our type of what we would go through, all who would believe in the gospel. Now, as we get into verse 30, we're going to see just what's called the golden chain of salvation. Some four links that make up a great ladder. 
And in it all, even today, uh, the previous verse we just went through, Paul's intent is not to raise a question on the foreknowledge of God or on predestination right here. Right here, Paul is being pastoral to those who are going through suffering. He'll intend to bring it up concerning soteriology in chapter 9, but right now he's just trying to comfort those who would be going through suffering and show the the um, indwelling of the Holy Spirit is so powerful in the life of a Christian. And so we're going into this soteriology, but it's supposed to be comforting and pastoral to us. So let's look at it. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified. So each one of these things is a link within the chain. The first is predestined. We've nearly beaten that word to death so far. Predestined, right? According to foreknowledge, we're a chosen generation. He's prepared us beforehand for his glory. Uh, before the ages of the world, we were ordained. D.L. Moody said, The predestined or the elect are the whosoever wills from John 3.16. The non-elect are the whosoever wants. And I hope today you're a whosoever will. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I know I'm going to use this quote in the future in Romans, but D.L. Moody also said, Lord, save the elect and then elect some more, (laughs) right? As an evangelist like D.L. Moody, it's just like, I mean, this is kind of where I land. You know, it's kind of like, I know this isn't, this isn't totally right. I've even been corrected by my professor friend, you know, but I'm a little on that line of just like, everyone's nominated, right? We're going into this election coming up. And to me, I mean, this is my understanding. Man, in it, everyone's not, I preach as if everyone's nominated. I preach as if if everyone's elect. I preach that that our God is the one who saves the elect. And I'm like, Lord, I want to be preaching to people that even if they weren't, Lord, you would turn their heart right here today. Elect some more. I know that's not totally like by the end of it all, we're going to be like, wow, like that guy was elect and he believed. And I'm, I'm encroaching into future material. I know it. But I think it was Moody who also says, on this side of eternity, the sign into heaven says, um, whosoever will. And then when we get to heaven and we look at the gate from the other side, the other side of the gate says, chosen from before the foundation of the world. And so on this side, man, I preach and I believe that everyone who hears the gospel will could receive it and be saved. And I know at the same time, at the end of it all, I'm going to be like, the elect are here. Everyone who was elect, the preacher went to him, the Holy Spirit was working, those people got saved. It's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Anybody feeling it yet? Let's all check our heart rate on our Apple watch right now. Oh my goodness. I need a medic. So the first link in the golden chain of salvation is um, uh, there in verse 29, moreover whom he predestined. Okay. And then the next link is these he also called. We're predestined. We're called, and in just a minute, I'm going to be in trouble because I'm running out of links. <laughs> Wish I had four hands here built into my body, but I only have two. So, but we're only at two right now. So, those who are called, John Stott says, the call, not the general gospel invitation, but the divine summons which raises the spiritual dead to life. This happens during the preaching of the gospel. It is often termed God's effective or effectual call. All right. Uh, I was mentioning in first service that when I was I'm a product of the eighties and nineties. And so one movie that our family used to watch all the time was sister act, all right? Whoopi Goldberg, you know, 
And I just always remember, you know, being like a fourth grader or a fifth grader, we're watching that. And uh, I was corrected by Sarah Voss. I said, in the movie, um, Whoopi is an FBI agent going undercover into the, uh, you know, this nunnery. And Sarah hollered at me in the parking lot between services. She was in witness protection program. I'm like, sorry, my sister act trivia is a little rusty. You know, she's great. So Whoopi, right? She's acting like a nun and she's trying to like hang out with the nuns. But they're like asking her all these theological questions that she's just not prepared for. And one of the questions was, when did you receive the call? And she's like, the call? And she's just thinking landline. You know, that's all she has in her brain. Why? Because she wasn't elect. I think we're done here today. We're gonna, no, I'm just kidding. All right. But, you know, it's crazy. I want you to think about one of the home group questions I just wrote up while Johnny was giving his um, Mexico trip announcement. I'm back there thinking, oh, this is a good one. Like, do you remember, Christians, the day that you were called? Now, we know sovereignly God called us before the foundation of the world. But do you remember that day that effectual call began working in your life and you sensed like an ice block of a heart that you had began to melt and it was something you never thought would happen. You know, there is a caricature of this idea where someone who adamantly does not want to receive Jesus are not going to be forced to receive Jesus. But the Saul of Tarsus also shows us that that son of God melts our hearts like wax when we least expect it. In fact, Chris Cross's testimony, he's in John Day preaching today and then on his way to Polina, his testimony was Michelle and his friend Ryan Sugai took him to hear the gospel and he's sitting up in the back of a balcony listening and he's like, this is so stupid. And the guy's like, raise your hand if you want to receive Jesus. And the whole time he's like, I would never And his hand is going up, you know, and he's like, oh, no way. What? Oh, no. You know, it's kind of C.S. Lewis has a similar testimony. The hardest boiled of all atheists was no longer safe because of his testimony of his friend becoming a Christian and he just didn't want it, but he wanted it, you know? And so you just see, when was it in your life that you remember like there was something, the gospel was preached at you and you just sent that, you sensed that ice block of a heart began melting uh, and softening before the Lord. So these who, moreover, whom he has predestined, these he's also, let's do it together. If I'm going to do it up here with my hands, you're going to do it back. There. I'm just getting right. Mike, seriously, you're going to do that. I'm just joking. All right. I hope the kids are doing a craft today where they get little strips of paper and make little chains. That would be perfect for us. All right. And then those he, whom he has called, these he has justified. All right. Now, this should be such a familiar word for us because we're going through the book of Romans, right? Total theme of justification by grace through faith, all right? Justified throughout the Bible, throughout the book of Romans, we become familiar with that word, justified. You know, it's your favorite show on FX where the guy wears that silly cowboy hat that would never fly in um, Prineville, right? But it's also a doctrinal word that's a legal term that describes what happens in heaven when a sinner comes to Jesus. Jesus becomes the defense attorney, and we can rest because he's standing between us and the district attorney, Satan, who's living to accuse us while Jesus lives to stand in the gap for us. He is our defense. And he says, Father, don't listen to this guy because Rory Rogers has put his trust in my blood that washes away sins. And the father says, you're justified, Rory. And we all know the fun little childhood word, justified just as if I'd never sinned. And then we stand up and the courtroom stands up and the DA is all ticked off and he goes out in a huff and we rejoice in the grace of God. We're justified. This week, for the first time in my life, I hired an attorney and had an attorney represent me. And I, I went into a, a court uh, a week before to represent myself and I was like, I can do this, you know? And then I'm like, I don't know if I can do this, <laughs> you know? And we just decide this is so important. We're going to hire an attorney. And it was just like, ah, oh, do your thing, ma'am, you know? And we're just like, you know? 
ah, I might have cried and sweated a little bit. But still, it was so nice to have someone represent us. And just as the New Testament says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. All right? We're justified. It's part of the golden chain of salvation. And in the dictionary, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but dikaiu, which is justified, means to show justice, to be put right with, to be shown to be right. Have you ever had anyone say to you, you're just trying to justify yourself. Don't try to justify it. I had someone say that to me once. You don't need to try to justify it. And I was like, well, if you weren't trying to condemn me, I wouldn't have to try to justify myself, but I need to be shown right in this situation. So I'm speaking up as to why this is correct. All right. Turns out I was wrong the whole time. And so I had to apologize, but she forgave me. Just kidding. Uh, we are justified freely by his grace. Romans three tells us, and then we're wrapping up and those whom he has justified these. He has also the last link in it. What is it? Glorified, glorified. Now here's something interesting in this word glorified. It's in the prophetic past tense. Did you catch that? prophetic, which speaks of in the future prophecy, but also something that's already been taken care of. He has glorified the elect. The essence of the promise is that it's so sure it's considered already done. How do we know Romans eight twenty eight that he is going to do future good for us? Because he's been working good for you in eternity past as well. It's as if your glorification has already been done. It's as good as done. He's glorified those who believe in him. In uh, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. John Murray said this, and this, I, I kind of hopped, hopped forward, but this would be the third caricature that we often create when we try to overthink God's sovereignty and salvation. So the first two were, if somebody were to uh, not want to get saved, but because they're elect, God forces salvation upon them. Or the other would be that somebody really wants to get saved, but can't get saved because um, they're not elect, Right something that we kind of make up in trying to understand the mystery too much. Uh, and here, John Murray's going to address the missionary movement is stifled by the hyper-Calvinist or the hyper-reformed because they don't want to overstep and preach the gospel to people who never should hear the gospel because they're not elect. And if you're ready for it for a few weeks from now, they're actually predestined to hell for God's good pleasure. All right. Okay, that's a few weeks from now. All right. But John Murray addresses this missionary issue where he says the passion for mission is quenched when we lose sight of the grandeur of the gospel. It is a fact that many, persuaded as they rightly are of the particularisms of the plan of salvation and of its various corollaries, have found it difficult to proclaim the full, free, and unrestricted overture of gospel grace. They have labored over inhibitions arising from fear that in doing so they would impinge upon the sovereignty of God in his saving purposes and operations. The result is through formerly assenting to the free offer, though formerly assenting to the free offer of the gospel, they lack freedom in the presentation of its appeal and its demand. And so there are certain people who are frightened to impress upon people the free gospel just in case people get saved who God never wanted to get saved. All right? This is why you should choose a Calvinist realtor if you're ever going to sell a home because they don't believe in a great commission. 
Thank you, Casey. Casey always says with my jokes, I go for the low-hanging fruit. Well, not today, Mrs. McKinnon. Not today. Now, is the way you finally end up being in heaven perfectly understanding soteriology, being able to articulate it just right and actually believing in one 100% or believing in other conviction 100%. Nobody goes to heaven by understanding the golden chain of salvation perfectly. We go to heaven by being saved by Jesus. One preacher said, if the thief on the cross was interviewed, are you here according to the foreknowledge of God? Have you been predestined? Are you called according to his purposes? The thief on the cross would say, I don't know what you're talking about. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. (laughs) Somehow in the mystery of Christ, everything led to that moment when he said, we're hanging up here because we deserve it. He didn't do anything wrong. How do you get up here for not doing anything wrong? It must be because he's taking my place. He's taking my place. So are you foreknown? Predestined? It's family language. We can talk about it at home, right? Yield to the beckoning spirit of the Lord if you're not, if you're not saved yet. I believe the Lord brought you here to hear the preaching of the gospel, that there is someone who stands up in your place and argues for your freedom. And if you would believe in him, his blood that he shed by dying on the cross for you would wash away your sins. But you must believe in him. That's the man's responsibility side of thing. If you will not believe, you'll be condemned. It's all through the New Testament. The Philippian jailer, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, I hope you've been sovereignly elected, bub. No, what what does Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you must be saved. Do you see Jesus more to be desired than anything else? Do you see his sacrifice sufficient to save you from your sins? John Piper said the intellectual understanding of election is not what's needed, but will you have him? Will you have him? I hope today, if you've never received Jesus and what he's done to save you from your sins, to save you from hell, to save you towards eternal life in paradise with him, I hope today you'll just humble yourself like a little kid and receive the gift of salvation like you've seen your kids do it on Christmas time, right? Grab that gift and embrace it and never let it go. And you'll be justified and you'll be glorified. The hope of heaven. We'll have the worship team come on up. I'm going to probably share this testimony just a little bit. uh, And it might expound and expand a little to tell more of the story as time goes on. But, uh, you know, We've been through what you might call the soteriology debate in this church. And so I just encourage you, if you're new to Calvary, check out our webpage, look at our statements of faith, listen to my teachings through Romans 8, uh, 9, 10, and 11 over the next few weeks. Um, but, you know, this is a matter that I'm just, uh, I'm settled in embracing the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility And I have watched uh, just undue dogmatism concerning this. I've watched it split churches time and time again. I've watched it separate friends. And like, we're just not going to go there. We're just not going to go there. And there are churches that, man, if you're over here in the pendulum swing, go to those churches. You'll hear it how you want it said. Praise God. I love so many of those churches. Over here, go to those churches. We just want to be biblical and we're going to go through the word and I am going to put my time into studying it so I can rightly divide it as a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. But I'll just tell you, like we, we've gone through it time and time again at this church and I'm just in just a place of comfort and rest and that I'm just who the Lord's made me as a pastor. We're Calvary Chapel. Look up Calvary Chapel, you know, and just... If you want to be here, we'd love to have you here. But 
just don't come and try to change this church. We're settled in our convictions of what the word says. And I've just been to the place where we're just teaching the word. And I'll, you know, I even hesitate. I love John Piper. Love John Piper, man. Uh, I like reform, uh, reformed pastors. I love them. I could listen to them all day long and I'll agree with 95% of what they have to say. 90%. I could go to a reformed church. But, uh, you know, we just had people come to the church and they listen to me teach and they're like, dude, you're a Calvinist. And I'll tell them, I'm not a Calvinist. You're a Calvinist, you know? And then, uh, you know, time goes on and they get mad because I get to the passages of, and it happened when we got to Galatians and it said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And I had them come to me and said, don't tell me to believe. I can't believe I'm totally depraved which is the T in Calvinism, tulip, right? And it was just like, man, all I'm doing is just reading the scripture of what, if someone wants to get saved, how can I tell them to be, you know, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But I've seen it time and time again. I mentioned John Piper, get a John Piper book and read it, but hold it loosely. And I've had it where in my men's group, homeboy shows up and he's got his brand new copy of a John Piper book that he just got off of Amazon and he brings it to group. And I'm like, here it comes. It's what the Babylon Bee calls cage stage Calvinism. I found this new incredible thing and I'm going to die on this hill and I'm going to divide a church while I'm at it. It's like, man, just open those hands up and let me give you another couple hundred other books that just show there is a mystery in all of it. And so just humbly, we just say, I can tell you, Jesus lovers who I believe advance the kingdom over here and over here. And I'm just so glad that we're going to get to go through this section of scripture together. And we're going to have our minds blown. Whew, 9, 10, and 11, you guys. It's going to be awesome. But wear your big boy pants, all right? You know, like wear your hiking boots, lace them up, you know, get ready to do some work bring some leather gloves to church, you know, because we're going to do some work and we're going to be astounded at how God has thought through this whole thing. And it will all be to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and have the worship team close us in song. Yeah. 
here today and you just maybe you feel the Lord softening your heart maybe you hear the Lord calling you to believe in Jesus to receive salvation you hear him say hey but Before you even were born, I had you in mind. Before you were even in your mother's womb, I had a plan to be with you and to use you. And that we could be friends and enjoy company together forever. And you just sense the Lord knocking on the door of your heart this morning. And he just says, I I want you to be a whosoever will today. Will you believe in me today? Will you let me take the burden off your back of your sin and your guilt and your shame? I'm calling you by name today. Come be my child. Come be my friend. Surrender. Don't worry. Don't worry about what it's going to be like. It's going to be okay. I got you. And today I just encourage you, receive Jesus. Got to help kind of do a dedication of a home yesterday that was being built and all the walls were up and the studs were still exposed and we were just asked to go around the home and just kind of pray over the home and write little notes of encouragement on the studs and write on um, just verses that come to mind and I went to the front door and I wrote from Revelation 3 where Jesus says behold I stand at the door and knock I'm knocking so many Preachers have said Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and is knocking on the door of your heart. He says, if anyone hears me and opens the door, then I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Today, the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart. Will you open the door? Will you let him in? Man, he will just radically revolutionize your life in such a beautiful way if you'll have him today. So right now where you're at, just say, Lord, I receive that. I believe what I'm hearing today. I don't understand it all, but I hear that Jesus Christ forgives sinners and I know that's me. Wash my sins away. Give me a new heart and a new mind that can begin to comprehend these things. I want to be a Christian. 
you prayed that prayer, just rejoice. As my daughter Tatum said, today the Lord has made you a Christian. (laughs) And all of us who are Christians, we would rejoice with you by also remembering that those he has predestined, these he's also called, those he's called, he's justified, and we all who are Christians who've been justified, we rejoice in this prophetic completion. He is also glorified. Already, but not yet. Lord, let us taste of the glory now, the beauty of knowing you and being with you. And Lord, we also look to the glory in the future. Complete the work that you started in us. Finish it to the end, Lord. And we will give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys. Hey, good job. I know it's a lot. Try teaching it. I have a feeling next week there will be a few more parking spots available for us to park in. You know, but uh, yeah, just praise the Lord for his sovereign, glorious grace.